Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Harriet Johnston, Ytree's Head of Brand and Marketing, and I'm hosting a series of Futureverse episodes in which we dig into topics that are closely related to Ytree's central purpose. So a reminder, that is, we want to build a world where wealth is defined by how we live, not what we have. And to get there, we're going to transform personal finance. Yes, we are, by giving transparency, efficiency, and meaning back to money. Today, we're talking about money, but we're looking at it through a different lens, the female experience. In each episode, I'm joined by a member of the Ytree team as my co-host. Today, it's Ytree's Head of Financial Life Strategy, Eliana Sides. Hi, Eliana. Hi, Harriet. And joining us to explore the relationship between women and money, we have Atega Uwagba, a best-selling author and journalist. She's written three books, the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, A Toolkit for Working Women, a short essay, Whites, on race and other falsehoods, and the Sunday Times bestseller, We Need to Talk About Money. In 2018, she was selected for the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. She graduated from Oxford University with a degree in politics, philosophy and economics and spent the early part of her career in advertising before becoming a writer full time. And Caroline Edwards, events director of the Really Helpful Club, who, through their back to business conferences, have helped over 2,500 women return to work or set up a business. Caroline read law at Cambridge University and was called to the bar in 1991. Since 2004, she sat as Justice of the Peace and since 2017 as a presiding justice. Caroline also sits on the board of the Sherry Blair Foundation for Women. Caroline Otega, welcome to the podcast. Hello, great to be here. Thanks very much for having us. So I want to divide this conversation into two parts, if I may. I'd like to look first at some of the issues facing women. And then I'd like to move on to talk about some practical solutions. So, Atega, I'm going to come to you first. Your book is called We Need to Talk About Money. The title is a clear call to action. So why do you think that we haven't historically been good at talking about money? And why is talking about money something that can be challenging specifically for women? It's a really great question. And I think specifically within the British context, I think it's long been established that talking about money is somehow gauche or impolite. And actually, we have the Victorians to thank for that. The culture of manners they established framed being openly interested in money and talking about it as a sign of vulgarity. But then even when you think about contemporary society, money tends to be really sort of insidiously tied up with notions of moral value. So we live in a culture that despite pockets of resistance here and there, largely venerates the rich and demonizes the poor and wealth is seen as a virtue you know it's evidence of hard work intelligence ambition and those who don't have money are portrayed by politicians and the media as feckless lazy individuals willingly trapped in circumstances of their own making so i think even for those who consider themselves socially progressive i don't think any of us can help but subconsciously attach a degree of sort of moral value to the number at the bottom of someone's bank statement it's really difficult to resist that kind of conditioning. And after all, money is in its most functional sense, a measure of value. So if you have less of it or command less of it, it denotes a lower value, not just economically, but socially. So money or lack thereof becomes shorthand for somebody's value as a person. And so I think it actually makes total sense that we find it difficult to talk about the subject openly, you know, that we feel discomfort or even shame when it comes to talking about money with our friends or our partners or at work, even with our family. Whether it's a large amount or small amount, the amount of money you have tends to invite judgment. And at the end of the day, who wants to be judged? 
Great answer. Caroline, do you have any thoughts about why, particularly for women, it can be really challenging to talk about money? Again, I think it's societal. Um, certainly my generation were brought up that, you know, it's, you don't talk about money. No, don't talk about money. It's vulgar to talk about money. Um, and I think that's that's really hampered our way of dealing with finances now going forward. You know, I'm at a stage where an awful lot of my friends are getting divorced and sadly some of them are bereaved and an awful lot of them have no clue about their own personal finances. And it's incredibly disempowering. It's scary when you, can, you can't talk to anybody about the finances because you have simply no clue what's been going on for the last 20 or 30 years. And I also think historically women, you know, haven't had as much money. We still don't have as much money, but it's been seen as a man's domain. And it wasn't that long ago, not that many decades ago, that you needed male approval to be able to make certain financial decisions, like getting a credit card or applying for a mortgage. You know, things are obviously different now, but those sorts of uh, rules and structures and systems have massively influenced, I think, the way even in contemporary society, women approach money. Although I like to think that things are changing a little bit. Caroline, women have made incredible strides in the last few decades, but the gender pay gap and traditional female employment patterns still persist. Why do you think there's such a misconfiguration between where women are now and the financial realities they face? More women than men still tend to be in lower paid roles, such as carers. Um, and that's, again, a societal issue that we need to address. We either need to value those roles more highly so they're better paid, or we need to encourage young women into better paid employment. The gender pay gap still exists, as you've said, um, but women need to be aware of this and call out any injustices. Hopefully, the high profile campaigns such as those at the BBC recently have increased people's awareness of these problems. And so they're more likely to come forward and complain. I'm hoping that as women climb the corporate ladder and take on management and board positions, these injustices will be less frequent. But progress is extremely slow. One of the things that I've come across recently that I find so extraordinary are the statistics around venture capital funding. So obviously an awful lot of people are employed. There's an awful lot of self-employed business people out there, whether they're male or female. Before the pandemic, about 3% of VC funding went to female-founded businesses. This fell to about 2% in 2020, and it currently stands at 1%. Why? Because the vast majority of the decision makers at VC funds are male. It's about 83% at the moment. So until we change those structures and get more women in these high profile positions, there's always going to be a problem getting women to progress and to get women recognised. I do want to jump in there, though, and just talk about this, because when I was researching my book and writing it, I think I definitely went into it with the approach of women are afraid to talk about money. Women you know, need to kind of lean in a bit more. I actually think that neglects to kind of factor in the real discrimination, gender discrimination that women face in the workplace, within financial institutions everywhere. And sometimes I worry that we get a little bit too sort of almost kind of victim blamey, because I know, for instance, when I look at my own social circles and the women I know, they are very assertive and switch on when it comes to money. But we are still dealing with bias, institutional bias, you know, just plain old sexism. And something that I definitely had to reframe when I was, you know, writing my book was the idea that women aren't asking or aren't, you know, trying hard enough. Because a lot of it is women are more likely to be told no, for example, when they ask for pay rise than men are. And I don't think it's because they're not as good at asking for pay rises. I do think there is a kind of social conditioning where they're not 
deemed as being as worthy of that sort of money. So they actually ask for pay rises. There was, you know, a Harvard Business Review study. They do actually ask, we do actually ask for pay rises at the same rates that men do. It's just that we're more likely to be told no. So I think, you know, the stat was something like 80% of men are declined when they ask for a pay rise. 85% of women are declined. Those sorts of statistics, that becomes cumulative. And over time, it kind of has a compound effect and it follows you around throughout your entire career. So something that I very much try to do in my work when talking about women and money is, I guess, kind of shift the blame back to where I think it truly should be, which is on, you know, broader sexism and bias as opposed to individual women's behaviour. I think that's such an important point. And I think I'm always looking for the allies the male allies, the ones who are willing to speak up themselves about what they think the right thing is for their female colleagues who are willing to openly share, for example, what they earn and how they progress in their careers, for example. So I take it you write in the book about some bad experiences you had in the workplace early in your career, specifically in relation to your pay, actually. If, if you're comfortable talking about it, I wonder if you might share that here, because I think it's so relevant to what we're talking about. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, where are the allies? Mm, Definitely. I had no allies in that job. Yeah. I mean, when I first started working, I don't think I'd yet been conditioned to behave and absorb some of the kind of norms around being a woman in the workplace. So I'm one of three daughters. I went to an all girls school was in a very kind of feminist environment up until the point I started working. So it never occurred to me to, I guess, kind of dial down my ambition. If anything, I was encouraged to really sort of be super ambitious. And so in my very first job, I remember within four months, I realised I was essentially kind of overperforming. And I marched into my boss's office, asked for a pay rise, because to me, it just seemed like the logical thing to do. And I got one. A few years down the line, when I I guess felt a little bit more careless. I was working in a very male dominated environment. It was a company that has since had, you know, a barrage of kind of me too stories come out about it in the media. And I had handed in my notice and I went to meet with a recruiter to discuss what my options were and, you know, to see what I might kind of command in the market salary wise. And she says to me, she was like, oh, I presume you're on about this amount. I think the amount was 40,000. And my face just dropped because... I was nowhere near that. I said, no, I'm not earning that. And she looked at my CV and she just said, with your level of experience and what you're doing, that's kind of about the level you should be at. And I remember just feeling, leaving that meeting, feeling so devastated and going back to my office and looking at some of the men that I worked with who did similar jobs to me. And I'm going to be honest, not as well as I did it. And thinking there is no way that they are on the salary that I'm on. And I remember then calling a male friend of mine and telling him about it. And he just said, how did you not know that that was wildly below, you know, market average. And I just said, I honestly, I I used to keep my salary really secretive. I I didn't used to talk openly about money. So I hadn't shared that kind of information with people. I hadn't really, I thought I'd done research going into that job and kind of looked at the internet, but you kind of have to do much more specific, almost kind of company specific research. And so I just didn't realise, I knew I was being underpaid a bit, but I didn't realise to what extent. Um, And it was also a company that again, has kind of had like a class action lawsuit against it for underpaying its female employees. So there was, you know, Definitely like a bigger system at play there. But I also, after that, vowed to never, you know, to essentially just to talk really openly about money. I remember texting my girlfriends being like, you guys need to start comparing salaries with your colleagues because this is what's happened to me. And I think that's because I was kind of flying in the dark there. Caroline, when we think about the law in the UK, I'm very curious to know if there's a gender pay gap associated with the work at the bar. 
I was very lucky. Um, I you know, went into a chambers, there were 65 members and there were three women. Um, but we had plenty of male allies. Um, in particular, my pupil masters were amazing. They were men who had daughters of their own and they could see that the future um, was in encouraging women to, to go to the bar and stay at the bar and be successful. So I was extremely fortunate. I don't remember ever finding that I was less well paid than my male peers. There were standard rates of pay um, if it was a certain type of, of case or trial, and everybody got paid the same, depending on seniority, obviously. So no, I never suffered at the hands of that. I mean, there was obviously, in those days, sexist comments made. There were certainly some very dubious behaviour. But thing, the abiding memory I have is just about how differently I was treated. So for example, I remember leaving to go to get married and my senior clerk asking me if I was coming back to work. Are you coming back then, Miss Evans? And I was I was 25 years old. Of course I was going back to work. And of course my husband was not asked the same question. So I suppose that kind of thing just shaped my views on uh, working. But I just fought back. I fought back and I fought harder. Caroline, can I pick up on something that comes out of some of the earnings that people have during their working life? I've done a lot of work on the gender pensions gap, and this is something very specific for women around their pension pots. It's getting a lot of publicity at the moment. But why do you think is the case? I think a lot of women do still stop work, even for it's a short period of time. And um, obviously, then you're faced with all of the costs that are incumbent on uh, maternity leave. You know, you're not earning as much as you would be, or you're not earning at all. Um, and you've then got childcare costs. Um, so I think a lot of people just forget their pensions, um, and they just don't they don't continue to make the contributions. So that is again, I, I think it's such a societal issue. I, I hate the fact that anything like child care or anything like that is seen as a woman's responsibility. You know, why is it that childcare is seen as just a woman's purview? It's not at all. Um, it is a joint expense. And actually, your pension should be seen as a joint expense as well. If you, because you're not earning, cannot afford to contribute, then your partner should be doing so on your behalf. I think that's a really great point. And I think you're totally right. One of the reasons why women's pension pots tend to be smaller, you know, when they come to retirement is because of having to take those breaks often, you know, for maternity leave or to look after young children. And then obviously there's also the cumulative effect of if you're not earning as much money, then you're not contributing as much to your pension. So there's really a double whammy. But the idea that, you know, in the same way that you would hope that childcare expenses, whether it's nursery or nannies, or whatever, are split equally between a married couple, you'd also hope that actually pensions are treated as a joint endeavour. And, you know, there is almost a bit of kind of like subsidising going on there. So yeah, that's something that I think an idea that should really be massively popularised. And I've actually not heard anyone float that before now. So it's great. There was a study done that showed most childcare was paid from a woman's salary returning to work as it was seen to be a luxury addition that enabled you to return to work. Something like 80% of women. Oh, completely. I mean, I have spoken to so many women in our back to business conference and I've said, you know, so, so why did you give up work? How long have you been out of work? And they all say <laughs> to a, a woman, they say, oh, I gave up because my salary wasn't covering the childcare cost. And I, I literally want to scream at that point because it's completely the wrong way of looking at it. It should be looked at as a, as a similar way to any other household expense. It's a joint cost. And also if a mother continues in her career, in time, her salary will increase and will exceed childcare costs. Plus children go to school. And at that point, the need for really expensive childcare diminishes. So we have to look at it in a completely different way. We, this, is, this is something we need to address. 
And of course, then thinking about, well, my own situation, I was a single mum for quite a long time. So in that circumstance, I mean, it really it really was down to me. But of course, there also wasn't the option not to work. So <laughs> different situations, different different issues. I'm going to move us on a bit to the wealth management industry itself, something close to our hearts at Ytree. So what has your experience of, of the wealth management industry been? Oh, how long have you got? <laughs> I have found the male domination of this industry to be quite staggering. My generation were told not to talk about money. We've already spoken about that. But also there wasn't a push when I was at Cambridge for women to join financial institutions for a career. There were an awful lot of male peers who were doing so, but there were very few women going into those sort of jobs. And I think it's very difficult as a female investor, as a female client, to have your voice heard if you are literally the only woman woman in the room. Now, I'm super confident and I had worked in a very male environment um, when I was at the bar. Um, but this happened to me. We went for some financial advice for um, with our previous financial advisors. And I was literally the only woman in the room. And everybody was addressing my husband and asking for his views on it. And I felt incredibly disempowered, which is something that has never, ever happened to me before in my entire life. So I think we need to encourage more women to become financial advisors so that female investors feel they're in a safe environment. And um, for example, only 12% of the CityWire fund manager database are female. And again, that has to change. So organisations such as the Diversity Project and women in banking and finance are doing a huge amount of work to encourage women into financial roles and to support them whilst they're in those positions through mentoring, etc. And I think once that's happened, then women will become more engaged. They will be more interested in investing and in finance because they'll see that there are lots of people just like them who are doing it and are interested in finance. So I think it has to change really from within in order to make um, female investors feel more comfortable. The industry should reach out to women through peer-to-peer -peer referral, using influencers and information events where women feel free to ask questions that they may think are silly and that financial advisors should absolutely never use acronyms because they're incredibly disempowering. If you don't understand the language that's being used, you're going to feel foolish. And so it needs to be in very easy to understand language so that everyone feels that they're part of the conversation. So Eliana, of course, is one of those amazing um, female financial advisors. But I want to ask a bit about your experience, Eliana, in terms of some of the other mistakes that the wealth management industry makes in how we're approaching women and the female experience of money. The language we use is very often quite traditional and old-fashioned and tends to be biased towards a male history of knowledge. But actually, it comes right from schooling. We don't educate people, either gender, in finance. But it seems to me when men get into the workplace, they start talking about making money with each other and they almost egg each other on. And I've not heard those types of conversations in the same way between groups of women. Whether they're healthy conversations is a separate matter, but the wealth industry is therefore biasing itself towards that type of lads uh, structure around money. What I think we need to do is think very carefully about how we discuss money as a whole. If it, everything is just about we're here to make more money on money for no purpose, for a great deal of people, particularly women, that's very disempowering. I think women like to have a purpose behind it. And a lot of studies have shown that it's often around family, whether that's next generation or, or just your family unit, a smaller family unit. Often it's about ensuring the well-being today 
as well as uh, in the future. So take I was really interested in some of your experiences in your book where you were talking about the upbringing you had from your parents and how we absorb those um, almost through osmosis from our childhood. And we're not recognising that enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the process psychologists call, sociologists call it financial socialization. Essentially, your attitude to money is hugely shaped by those early years, your you know childhood and teenage years. It's sort of two sides of a coin with me because I grew up in an environment, you know, it was, we were immigrants to the UK on a council estate, didn't have a lot of money. We weren't poor. And, I, and I'm always very specific about that because I think about poverty and I, I know what the actual stats are and that wasn't the case, but money was tight. It was a humble background. On that side of things, I did definitely absorb a real anxiety around money that I think has, as I write in the book, has kind of followed me around um, and really kind of came home to roost during my adult years when I actually kind of had my own money and finances to think about. On the flip side, I am extremely financially literate and that was down to my parents essentially educating me and my sisters in such a way because for them, the key thing was financial independence. I always joke and it's it's also funny given the kind of cultural background I'm from, which is quite traditional. My parents have never asked me if I have a boyfriend or when I'm when I'm getting married or, you know, I want grandkids. Their question has always been, do you have a savings account? How much is in your ISA? That's literally been it. And the second, you know, I was fortunate enough to finally be able to buy my own property a few years ago. And after that, my mum just said, okay, well, you're done. You're taken care of. That's all they care about is that financial security. And I think they're very conscious of that, especially as women. So I'm very grateful for that. And I do actually also just want to pick up on something you were saying about language. Because again, when I was researching my book, I came across this very interesting study. It was done by a bank. I think it was 2018, 2019. I can't remember which bank it was, but it was essentially a semiotic study of media, you know, articles and publications. And it looked at financial articles that were, let's say, in women's media versus in men's media and the language used. And they found that media that is kind of aimed at women talks about money and offers financial advice in a very kind of almost kind of micro way. So it talks about budgeting and saving up for that splurge on shoes and stretching your, your money a bit further. And then when it comes to talking to men, it's talking about investment and stocks and bonds and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And so there is also a real problem within media and the language that is used um, in terms of how they address women, because it's also quite patronizing. And actually what you want is to be able to open a copy of Glamour magazine and for them to say, right, well, here are the, you know, five financial advisors we've spoken to about saving for a pension as opposed to here is how we can use this app to spread the cost of your shoes over four months. So that isn't that isn't helpful to us. Can I pick up on that a little as well? Because one of the things that is traditional in the wealth industry, wealth management industry, is to think that women have a lower risk level on the whole. Now, when you were talking about your savings and everything else, what would you say about your personal risk level because of your background and how do you think of it? Okay, well, my personal risk level is very low. And I don't think that is a gendered thing. I do think, and again, it's something I write about in the book, I think it's very much to do with that kind of slight anxiety around money. You know, there's this amazing financial psychologist, Brad Kluntz, who, to be careful how I pronounce that one, Brad Kluntz, who has sort of come up with these very, these kind of four, I guess, money mindsets. And one of the ones he identified, which I identify very strongly with, is money vigilance. And it's essentially somebody who is 
generally financially responsible, but almost to a fault, almost kind of hoarding money. And they're very nervous, very anxious. And in order to kind of invest well, I do think you need to tolerate an element of risk. And that's something that I personally have been working on in the past couple of years. So I'm currently renovating my flat and I was talking to my accountant about, you know, how to fund it, how to pay for it. I was saying, I don't want to commit any money that I don't have in cash. And that often just isn't how life works. I have essentially spent the past kind of two or three years saving up all the cash so I can pay for it all outright because I don't like risk. Um, And he was just sort of explaining to me how we could kind of inject a bit of risk to kind of crunch those timelines so I could afford to work, to do the work a bit sooner. And I really saw how my mindset was very much that of somebody who'd grown up without money because I have that anxiety and I don't like credit, I don't like debt, all of those sorts of things. But debt isn't always a bad thing. I mean, hell, my mortgage is a massive bit of debt. I would say I'm personally very risk averse, but it's something that I'm consciously working on. And I think that's specific to my own background as opposed to gender. Because actually when it comes to negotiating, say, um, for, you know, paid work, I'm quite aggressive and pretty happy to kind of risk losing out on work, you know, because I'm like, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of go in there high. So I think there is an area where I am quite happy to, you know, take on a bit of risk. But when it comes to kind of bigger financial decisions and the idea of my financial solvency, I'm very kind of cautious. Very interesting, isn't it? I come from a sort of scarcity mindset around money. I grew up feeling that, you know, there wasn't enough. And I was being sent to a great school, but I was made to feel kind of guilty about it because it meant we certainly couldn't have holidays or this or that or the other. I ended up being sort of the opposite to you, Otega, having very, very high risk tolerance and just not wanting to look at money. Basically just pretending like it's not there, focus on every other aspect of my life with intensity and assume that my financial freedom will follow. It's taken me until my 40s to actually be brave enough because it was a fear thing to really look and get engaged with it, engage with money, engage with my own situation and find out maybe it's not as scary as I thought. And some of that is about language and being put off at quite a young age because it felt like it wasn't for me. So I feel like things have definitely moved on. It's really good to hear um, Otega's thoughts. But I think what, what you say about risk is so fascinating. Caroline, I wonder if you've got an idea of what your personal risk tolerance is and where it comes from. I didn't have an enormous amount of wealth in my family. Um, we were comfortably off living in Wales. I did go to a private school, but my parents really saved for that. And again, we didn't go on fancy holidays. So it was a you know it was pretty normal background. And I I think actually have a slightly more more tolerance to risk than my husband. And I think that again could just be the way our family is. And you know he's always he's always I think felt quite protective of everybody. We've got three sons. They have incredibly different um, ideas on money. One, money literally burns a hole in his pocket. And then one literally never spends anything. So he he's hilarious. And we say, well, look, surely you want something for your birthday. No, I don't need anything. And then the other one is in the middle. And of course, they've been brought up in exactly the same way. So I think an awful lot of it just comes down to your personality, actually. And, you know, three boys, three very different attitudes. What you said about being brought up in the exact same way is very interesting because, so I'm the youngest of three girls and, you know, after my book came out and my oldest sister especially read it and she kind of said to me, she was like, why, where did you get this anxiety about money from? Because we had the same parents, you know, same background, all of this. And, you know, we always kind of joke that she's the kind of slightly profligate one out of us and I'm super, super cautious. Um, And we just couldn't figure it out. So I do think there is a kind of, just a personality thing but she you know she is sensible with money and you know well ish and you know she's done very well for herself but she doesn't have that kind of fear and panic that 
I have. And we were trying to figure out where that came from. We just couldn't. So it is funny how even with the same kind of financial background and upbringing, two people can just end up being very different. We should recognise that education can change what we've had in our background. And that's what's really important. And that's where the wealth management industry should be coming in to help people. They should understand exactly that what you've talked about, our backgrounds, the, the emotional response we bring towards money. But then we should be adding that education on top to help people be conscious about it. I take you've talked very consciously about understanding your background because you've written about it. But so many people don't do that. And if you don't get access to people to talk it through or you haven't come from a, a sort of background where money is talked about openly, it becomes a barrier. And then what we see is if it's the male partner of the household having those conversations because the woman's at home looking after the children, and I have seen this time after time, and it's not generational, sadly, then that access to that knowledge gets more and more distant and it becomes entrenched. There's a great book that's just come out by Claire Barrett. Uh, she's a Financial Times columnist, and it's called What They Don't Teach You About Money. I think it should be on every child's reading list. As soon as they leave school, they should absolutely read that because it gives you the nuts and bolts and it makes you understand that, yes, your views on, on finance may be shaped by your upbringing, but also all the nuts and bolts, you know, whether or not you should take out a student loan, what does it mean to have a pension, all of these things. She explains it brilliantly. So really, everybody should be reading that book and just understanding that there are so many facets to finance. So we work with our clients to help them with their children having some areas to open up. Even playing Monopoly teaches about risk. Oh, don't start all the pieces. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it unless I can be banker. So I wanted to wrap up by asking each of you, what's the biggest lesson you've learned so far in your lives, careers, families in relation to money? Otega, I'd love to start with you. Don't spend more than you earn. If we look at the economic climate, not everyone is in a position to do that. And I think that's really important to bear in mind. The levels of personal debt where people are having to, you know, put just very average expenses on credit cards going up. So that's something to be conscious of. But if you are in a position, don't spend more than you earn. I didn't take out my first credit card till I was 27, 28. And the reason I did it at that stage is because I knew I needed to start building up a good credit rating for in order to apply for a mortgage at some point in the future. Um, but prior to that, I had thought to myself, well, there's not really much difference between paying using a debit card or a credit card. But then obviously I realised. But the principle of that was I didn't want to spend somebody else's money. And obviously now I have a credit card and I use it for most things, but I do pay it off every single month in full, which again, I do have to say I'm fortunate that I'm in a financial position to do that. But the fundamentals remain, which is somebody has to pay that back. And I think sometimes people kind of see, you know, overdrafts and credit as free money. And it's not, it's actually really, that's going to be serviced at really high interest rates. So that is my biggest kind of money uh, thing. Obviously, when it came to getting a mortgage, I then had to really <laughs> think of, I was like, this feels like the most predatory loan I will ever take out. You know, you just think about it from a contractual point of view and you think this is insane, but obviously the way things work, it kind of comes good in the end. So that's my main, uh, I guess, money lesson, which is just living within your means, essentially. And Caroline, if I can come to you. My first one is the importance of keeping an active interest in finance. Um, I think so many women just ignore it. And I think that's so dangerous with divorce and bereavement. It's then you're left completely vulnerable, actually. So keep an active interest in finance. Women are so good at by word of mouth recommendations. So let's start having these conversations. Let's spread the word. Um, because when women do invest, they tend to be just as successful and sometimes more successful than their male counterparts. So let's just start talking 
talking about it and let's empower one another um, to have a go, to, to be interested and to invest and um, to take part in the conversation. Um, the other point is that really try to keep working if at all possible, even if it's on a part-time basis. Because um, through my work uh, with the Back to Business conferences, it's really tough to come back after a career break. So even if you're just keeping your hand in part-time, try and keep it going. And that's what I say to all the young women I come across, try to keep uh, the career ticking over even into some capacity. Eliana, what about you? What would be your the biggest lesson you've learned about money? The two Carolines covered are so important. But the other thing is, do sweat the small stuff. Those little bits of money compounded make such a difference over your lifetime. Otega, you talked about you didn't negotiate hard enough on that first job and the impact that has over a lifetime. Every little bit like that is compounded through your life. So whether it's you overpay your tax every year by a few pounds, why? So invest the time in yourself to spend looking at the small stuff because every single year it gets you closer and closer to wherever your goals are. And that is such a difference, as well as keep working and everything else. Isn't your other one, uh, never forget to take the free money? That is a substantial part of it. Always take the free money because we all walk away from opportunities where there is something. Pensions are a classic one. Always go for it. Always look what's there. Check your state pension. There are so many different things you could do. But it's actually being actively involved with your own money and thinking about your own future and having control. Otega, Caroline, Eliana, thank you so much for being here today. And if any of the issues we've discussed in today's episode piqued your interest, please visit y-tree.com to find out more about Ytree and the work we're doing to provide an alternative perspective on money and life.